0: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Chris Case, sitting down today with co-host, Coach Trevor Connor, And today we're going to tackle a concept in this summary episode that we've been, I, I can't believe we haven't done it before. This idea of how much high-intensity training do you actually need? There are clear benefits. There are limitations. Trevor Tell us a little bit more about the breadth of today's episode.
1: Well, I got to admit, I'm just excited to be part of the intro. It's been a long time. Hey, and you're here. I am here. You're alive. And I actually really don't have much to add. That was pretty good. Well, thank <laughs> you. All I'll say is, yeah, we were surprised when we looked back. We've touched on high-intensity work many times in the show, but never really done a dedicated, here's what we have seen, here's what we believe, here's our recommendations on how much high intensity to do and what are the benefits of it and also what are the limitations. So this is being a summary episode, this is just gonna be Chris and myself, but we have a real star studded list of people who we're gonna bring in from past episodes to to help make this point.
0: Yeah, let me rattle through the list here. We've got a lot of people. We've got Hannah Finchamp, an Olympic caliber uh, mountain bike and gravel racer. With, she races with the Orange Seal team. We've got Dr. Steven Seiler, someone you've heard on the program hopefully many times before. He is one of the uh, physiologists that has really popularized the polarized training model. We'll hear from Kristen Armstrong, a three-time Olympic gold medalist in the time trial, and she has some thoughts she'll share on interval training. We'll hear from Coach Grant Holicky of Forever Endurance, someone you've hopefully heard on the podcast as well before. We'll hear from Sebastian Weber, lead physiologist at Inside, and someone who's coached many, many great World Tour caliber athletes in his day. We'll hear from Jim Miller, director of performance at USA Cycling. And finally, we'll hear from Dr. Inigo San Milan, who hopefully you've also heard on Fast Talk before. He's a great physiologist, a great mind in physiology, and just happens to be the coach of Tadej Bogacar, 2020 Tour de France champion. Let's hear from all of those today on Fast Talk. Hey Trevor, is there anything else I've forgotten? Oh Wait, do I
1: get to say it? You
0: get to say it, go for it.
1: Let's make it fast.
0: Hey, this is Chris Case. Did you know you can meet up with other Fast Talk podcast listeners and discuss today's episode on our Fast Talk forum? Our forum is open to anyone who joins Fast Talk Labs through our free listener member level. You can ask follow-up questions about topics you've heard on Fast Talk and sometimes even get responses from the guests we've interviewed. Join the conversation. Join Fast Talk Labs today at FastTalkLabs.com. So let's set the stage, Trevor. Tell us a little bit about some of the myths that people have about hit work.
1: Yeah, I think when you start talking about high-intensity work in training – this is one of the areas where I think there are some of the, the strongest opinions, some of the big, biggest misconceptions, and where I really see with athletes this desire to kind of say, here's what I want, therefore I'm going to justify why this is what it should be. And you kind of see those two directions. One is, if it doesn't hurt, why would you do it? So I'm on the bike. I'm going to do high-intensity work all the time. I want my tongue hanging out.
0: Yeah, the classic no pain, no gain myth.
1: Exactly. But there's also that other side of, well, the, you know, I'm just going to ride easy and do lots of big volume all the time. And I think you see these kind of two sides or these two beliefs. I actually recently read an article by somebody who we know, would consider a colleague, who basically wrote against base training. Wrote against long, slow distance, and his argument was, "Well, if all you're ever doing is long, slow distance, you're not going to get sufficient training adaptations." And went, "Good point," but whoever said all you should ever be doing in the base pe- season is is long, slow distance. Right. Uh, so, I think one of the messages that we're going to try to get out here—a message that we've been trying to communicate for a long time—and I hope becomes the primary message of this summary episode—is. It's not, is hit work good or bad for you? It's not more is better. It's all about balance. Mm -hmm. It's about doing the right amount. So, yes, I think these both are myths. To say you're going to get fit never doing high intensity and just putting lots of time on the bike. No, you're going to go to a race and get killed. Likewise, I think if you are getting on, every time you're getting on the bike, you're going and doing something hard. You're also not going to see the improvements that you expect, and you're also going to get killed. Mm-hmm. It is all about balance. So those are the two myths we want to dispel.
0: And I would like to clarify here, you will see improvements if you ride your bike more than you did before, and yes. it's just slow. And you would see improvements as well if all you did was high intensity to a point, and then you might go over the cliff and and start overtraining, et cetera. Um, And when you say balance, and I know we're going to get to this, balance does not mean 50% slow and 50% hard.
1: That's the argument that we're certainly going to make, and that's why we've tended towards the polarized approach. And and we're going to ultimately make a lot of that case over the course of this episode that the balance is really – 20% 20% high intensity and, and the rest of the time keeping it slow. And, and we'll make the arguments on the case for why that is.
0: And you hesitate a little bit when you put 20% on it because that's a flexible number. For right. some it might be 10, for some it might be 30, 25. Throughout the course of the season it will also change. So it's there's never a this is the number that you must hit right. and, and, and that's it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's the really important point through the season Even within an individual, it's going to be different. When I'm on the bike in November, I'm probably 95%, 5%. Right. Because why would I want to be killing myself in November? The season's a long way away. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right now, I'm really working the top end. I'm probably closer to 30, 35 high intensity. But I don't want to try to sustain that for very long. So it it can really vary. Uh, And we'll make all these cases. But yeah, that's the kind of starting... I hope we've gotten this message across throughout our episodes, but the the key here is balance. More is not necessarily better.
0: Okay, so let's actually take a step back here. Often you'll see H-I-T and H-I-I-T, HIT and hit. Thank so, you for doing
1: that. <laughs> let's
0: let's distinguish between the two. I would assume that there are people out there that think that there's just an extra "i" and one, and they're the same exact thing. But let's let's be specific here.
1: Sure, and I'm going to start by saying we actually looked this up a while ago, and I did find different. I found some really interesting definitions of what they are. Um, some pretty crazy stuff. I wish I actually had in front of me. I, I found a yoga website that had one of the craziest definitions <laughs> of hit I've ever well, seen.
0: A yoga, de- a yoga definition of hit. That's interesting. So
1: understand there are a lot of different definitions out there. So I'm going to give you how we think about it, mm-hmm. our definition, and I understand that some of you might have seen something different, and that's fine. But the way I think of it is, HIT stands for high intensity training. And that's just basically referring to doing training that's generally at or above your lactate threshold. Now, that can be interval work, but technically you can think of going out and doing a training race as hit work. Mm -hmm. You can think about going out and just hitting a hill really hard as hit work. So then you get into the HIIT, which is high-intensity interval training.
0: A little bit more specific, supposedly.
1: So it's the good old a square is a rectangle, but a rectangle isn't necessarily a square. So think of HIT as the with one eye is broader, and HIIT is more specific. So it's one type of high intensity training. Um, And since so you know, next question is what is intervals? So intervals generally refers to some sort of structured workout where you have a certain length of time that is at intensity uh, with recovery periods. And it's usually something that you're going to repeat a certain number of times.
0: Well, let's dive into the topic of benefits. We, we actually know that high intensity work is a necessary thing if you're going to race. It, it has its very clear benefits. So shall we talk about energetics?
1: Absolutely. My favorite topic.
0: Yeah. You went to school. F- your degree is actually in bioenergetics. Is that correct? Yes. Professor Connor now, not coach.
1: Sure. Absolutely. I like that. You're going to call me professor for the rest (laughs) of the episode?
0: Nope. (laughs) I might call you T-Con or something.
1: I'm more comfortable with that anyway. So we'll go with that. But we will give the energetics approach. So I'm going to start by saying we're talking about energy systems. And now that I've said that, I'm going to say we're actually not talking about energy systems.
0: That's a simplification, correct? Right.
1: So I use the term energy systems all the time and I have been asked about this through emails. So when we are talking about training adaptations and referring to the energy systems you're trying to train, it's a lot there's there's a lot more in that. So I mean just to name a few and this is not an exhaustive list by any stretch of the imagination. We're talking about mitochondrial density, we're talking about MCT development. We're talking about lactate clearance, hydrogen ion buffering, buffering, vascular capillarization, fat oxidization, improving stroke volume, neuromuscular recruitment, muscle fiber conversion. Keep uh, going,
0: keep going. uh,
1: Reactive oxygen species buffering. You're even getting into mental (laughs) things like mental toughness. You're going to need a banana soon. I just had a banana before this. (laughs) Okay. I'm ready to go. You you want me to keep going? mm -hmm. The point being, there's a whole lot of things that you are trying to train and we do tend to lump all these into this term energy systems. It's not quite the appropriate term, but it's just a good, simple, you get the concept term. And ultimately all this is helping you to produce energy to put into you know, to, to put into the bike to produce power. So I just wanted to give that qualifier, people who brought that up, yes, you are right. Um, We are simplifying when we say energy systems, but basically I'm making my argument for why we're just going to stick with that simplification.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. It makes sense at at times to do that.
1: Yep. So with that qualifier, basically whenever you are training, what you're trying to do is improve these energy systems. And again, I'm going to skip over this really quickly because we've talked about this a bunch. But the idea here is you need to hit an energy system, you need to do sufficient damage to it to have your body say, whoa, didn't like that, you you hurt me, so I'm going to repair this, but not only am I going to repair it back to where it was before, I'm actually going to make it better, I'm going to make it stronger. And that's really important because it's about the right level of damage. You do a little bit of damage, body's going to go, yeah, I got to repair that, but that wasn't a big deal. So I'm just going to take you right back to where you you were before. You do too much damage, your body goes, oh boy, I'm not sure what to do here. So I'm going to try to repair this. But because you keep training, best I can do is just kind of maintain you. It's fun about finding that optimal enough damage for the body to say, let's adapt.
0: Yeah, that super compensation. It doesn't come back to the same level. It goes beyond right. that level and gives and you more.
1: The idea is too much training, you don't get that. Too little training, you don't get that. Now, I just rattled off a whole bunch of energy systems, and here's another thing to think about, which is if you try to train all those energy systems at once, you find yourself in a position where you have the one choice of saying, well, I'm going to do enough damage to all of them to get that adaptation. But then the problem is the cumulative damage is huge. And then your body is overwhelmed and says, I can't adapt from this. On the flip side, you can say, well, I don't want to overdo that, so I'm going to try to train all energy systems. But I'm just going to do a little damage to each one so that the cumulative damage, the total damage, is manageable. But then your body might say, well, you didn't really do a ton of damage to any one energy system, so I'm not really going to train them back right. An example I see of this all the time is with triathletes who try to train all sports equally all time, at all times. They either end up going into that constantly overreached, pushing over training, or they just sort of hit everything. And what you, I hear triathletes complain about all the time is I just don't seem to be improving. So when I coach a triathlete, I go, look, what we're going to do is spend some time. We're just going to maintain your running, maintain your swimming, and really hit the bike. once we've got that to a point, then we're going to maintain your your bike level and really hit the running. And I find that more successful. So when we're talking about energy systems, uh, I prefer a similar approach of saying, let's hit a couple energy systems really hard, get that adaptation, and then they're going to kind of be maintained by the work you're doing to hit other energy systems. Because it's not like training is that specific. You can't really just only hit two energy systems. You're, you're going to you can focus on a couple energy systems with your interval work, but you're still going to hit kind of every energy system at once. Mm-hmm. So this gets into that, how do you periodize? And we'll talk more about that. But the idea here is you're, you're trying to hit an energy system, you're trying to produce an adaptation. And my strong recommendation is if you try to train all energy systems at once, like I said, you're either going to overtrain Or you're never really going to get any adaptation because you're not hitting any one energy system hard enough. So focus on a couple, build them up, then move on to the next ones and maintain what you built up. And so, yeah, just to make this point, we did an episode uh, not that long ago with Hannah Finchamp, who's a professional mountain biker, and she's right now on the short list for the Olympics. Um, And she brought up that danger of trying to hit a whole bunch of systems at once. So let's hear what she has to say
2: when we're truly talking about unstructured intensity, I think that that is when it gets messy because you're no longer targeting your energy systems. You're not following a polarized approach. You're not following a periodized approach. You just can't mix and match so many energy systems where you're going for you know a, a 10 second segment and you're also going for an hour long segment and expect to have the same outcome as someone who's being very thoughtful in, in all of their intervals and strategy for their workouts.
0: All right. So we defined hit and hit at the start of the episode. We've now defined energetics. Let's bring the two together. What's the relationship.
1: So this gets into the, yes, we need high intensity training. We, we need this sort of work A lot of those energy systems that I uh, just told you about. So remember, we're trying to do damage and do sufficient damage to produce an adaptation. With a lot of those systems, the only way you can actually produce any damage to them is to go hard. You need to do something that's going to hurt. So yes, to answer a question, if all you're ever doing is going out and riding slow, you are going to have some some systems that are going to be adapted by that. But those systems that you need to be able to race well, to be able to respond to attacks, to be able to sit there in the field when it's going really hard up a climb, they can only be trained. They can only be stressed. You can only damage them with intensity. Yeah, so we actually back episode 113 with Sebastian Weber when we were talking about the recovery length and intervals We started by talking about a little bit about what are you trying to do with intervals, and he brought up some of these systems that you're trying to hit, some of the things that you're trying to do with high intensity, such as build up lactate, deplete that phosphocreatine, and he was really making the point that you got to go hard, you got to hurt in order to be able to bring about those changes.
0: All right. Well, that begs the question. What are the systems or what are the things that can be targeted with this high intensity training work?
1: So, I'll start with one that I'll say you do need to train with high intensity, but probably can also train with some low intensity, which is that lactate threshold. So, you think about you're doing a time trial, you're going up a long climb, you're going to be sitting there at that threshold. That's something you want to train. And when they look at what correlates with performance in racing, that's one of the big ones. So that's something you really want to train. That said, they have shown that your aerobic threshold and your your lactate or anaerobic threshold, and we've already gone into all the different terms for this upper threshold, mm-hmm. uh, they do tend to move with one another. So there is some evidence that if you're doing that lower-intensity training, at close to your aerobic threshold, that's actually going to push both thresholds up. So that one, I put a little bit of an asterisk on.
0: Is that true in the opposite direction?
1: Yes. They they do tend to move with one another. Mm-hmm. So, so if
0: you increase your anaerobic threshold, you will, so, so to speak, pull your aerobic threshold up as well? Theoretically, theoretically yes. Theoretically, Okay. So you've explained the system, lactate threshold system. Give me an example. Give the listeners out there an example of work to target that system.
1: The main thing here for me is length and being steady. Uh, you will hear a lot of people that say, well, you know, you're a time trialist. I do 40K time trials, so I should go out and do an hour-long interval or a really long interval. My My response to that is – In a race, you can really motivate yourself and push yourself hard. I think when you're going out and doing interval work, it's really hard to do an hour hard enough. It's
0: mentally taxing
1: to do that. So I think this is – the lengths that I like are on the short end, five minutes. On the long end, ten minutes. I generally don't prescribe longer than that. Uh, The other thing I like about that – and actually, this is where we can throw in a a quick quote from Kristen Armstrong – is if you do those shorter lengths, you can go a little bit harder. So you don't wanna be going 140% of threshold, but you can get up 105, 110% of threshold where you're still hitting that energy system, still hitting it actually pretty hard and might actually get more, higher quality interval.
2: Number one mistake that a lot of people do is they train the duration. Jim may or may not agree on this, but I'm pretty sure he'll agree with most okay. things i say. But I'm not going to go out. And I mean, my Rio time was about 44 minutes. I never trained 44 minutes on my time trial bike. Not once. I can tell you that. I trained 20 minutes really hard. And I was able to expand because of that fitness box that Jim was talking about. My general fitness was so high through road racing that I can extend that power in that time to 40 minutes. I got to the point where I can extend on training day a 20 minute time trial to my 40 minutes. And so it was really important to train. I think that a lot of times what I see is when you're training for a time trial, people are training almost in a zone that's too long. So they're training right at threshold or sometimes sub threshold because they're not able to keep at 110% right into that VO2 um, for that long of interval. So let's just say somebody does, we're gonna go out and we're gonna do two by 20 minute because your race is 40 minutes long. It's like, well, why don't we do one by 20 minute at 110%. So I feel like there's a lot of people out there training between 95% and 105%. But when you get up to that 110% and extend that duration to 10 minutes to 15 minutes and eventually to 20 minutes, that is the key zone for time traveling. It is critical because training from 100 to 105 just isn't enough.
0: Okay, so we've just heard from Kristen who said 105 isn't enough. She likes to go 110. And you've talked about going above 100%. But I want to clarify something because there are people out there that are probably a little confused. You're talking about threshold intervals. To me, that says at threshold, but now you're talking about going above it. And we've got an Olympian saying you got to go 10% above it. So what's the real answer?
1: Yeah, good question. And this goes back to, you've heard me say this before, we're not, our bodies aren't that precise. You don't, ride right at 100% of threshold and you're hitting one energy system and then go to 101% of threshold and all of a sudden you're hitting an entirely different energy system. It is a range. And so I think 110% still fits within that range. You're still basically hitting the same energy system. You're just hitting it a little bit harder. So that's going to produce a little extra stress. It's going to force you, make your body go, okay, this is a little outside of my comfort zone. So now I really need to learn how to do this. You just get that little more training stimulus. Now, here's what really confuses people because we've talked about right at 95% of threshold, <laughs> right. So, this I think it was Neil Henderson who talked about this. He loves to give time trialists low cadence work at 90-95% of threshold. Reason for that one, here's a different energy system and this is very very specific targeting that unless you're a time trialist, I wouldn't worry about this. But our ability to clear lactate hits its max, not at threshold, you're actually on the downside of that curve. It hits its max at about 90, 95% of threshold. So for time trialists where lactate clearance is everything, doing some training at that point where lactate clearance is maximized is really, really valuable. So I know this is really confusing to people. So this is some of that What energy system are you specifically trying to target? So, if you're trying to improve your ability to ride at threshold, yeah, you want to ride at threshold or a little above because a little above is going to stress the body and say, well, I'm being forced to sustain power a little, you know, a little above threshold. So, I better get my threshold up. But if you're really just trying to train that clearance, then that 90, 95% is a really kind of neat trick that used to be a secret that we're kind of letting out now. But The overall intervals here is I do think they need to be longer for two reasons. One is it takes time for for lactate to plateau. So when you are at threshold, if you are truly at threshold, lactate should be staying fairly level. When you up your power, it takes time for lactates to come up and then plateau. You want that. Likewise, it takes time for your aerobic system to kick in. Where anaerobic energy is immediate aerobics or the the whole Krebs cycle, the uh, phosphorylation, the whole electron transport chain, that takes time to ramp up. So when you do a threshold interval, that first minute or two is kind of a throwaway. So if you're trying to do two, three-minute threshold intervals, you're never really hitting the system you want to hit. So that's why I would say a minimum five minutes. And if you're getting out of that eight, 10 minutes, it means if you have a 10-minute interval, two minutes are a throwaway, you're getting eight minutes of good quality. So needs to be a little bit longer, and they need to be steady. And when I give that type of interval work, I want them consistent. So if you're doing 4 by 8s I don't want to see the first one at 300 watts and the last one at 240. I want to see the first one at 305 watts and the last one at 295 at most. You know, that's the, the biggest drop I want to see. Now, things that absolutely require uh, high intensity. Anything that involves some form of anaerobic metabolism, you can't really train at low intensity. You're just not going to produce enough of a stress. So you hear people talk all the time about VO2 max. That's another one that gets an asterisk, they have really shown. If you're coming off a couch, you're completely out of shape, you can improve your VO2 max. But very quickly, that peaks out and you can't really change VO2 max.
0: In that asterisk, would you say that if you tested yourself in December and then tested yourself again in April in the same athlete, obviously, you would see an improvement?
1: You'll probably see a bit of an improvement, but there more of what you're seeing is you got a little out of shape Mm -hmm. in the off season. So you're just getting back up to your norm, but- There's a ceiling to it. Right. So it's more, if you look at somebody who's been training for years and, and looked at their VO2 max at the peak of each season, it's probably going to be about the same. You're not going to see it budge that much. And unfortunately, once you start getting up to my age, you're just seeing it come down. Mm-hmm. Um, the other way, obviously, the easy way to improve your VO2 max is because, sense it's relative to weight, you sure. bring your weight down, it's going to go up. But the actual oxygen consumption is going to stay about the same. And actually, since we're talking about we've got a good short clip from Dr. Seiler from a a previous episode where he talked about the fact that you can't really improve VO2 max and the dangers of athletes who think they can and spend a lot of time trying to work it um, and ultimately end up pushing themselves into an overreach.
3: VO2 max is, we think, fairly much limited by cardiac cardiac function, by the heart, by the, the vasculature, you know, how much blood volume you have and things like that. It seems like, you know, we've tested so many young, talented athletes. VO2 max is one of the first physiological parameters for the endurance athlete that actually peaks. So in the career of an athlete, you may already see that they're really high for this value at age 18, 19. We just tested a couple of guys in our lab last week and both of them were 88 mLs per kg, you know. And I said, look, these guys, this is already world class. But they, they're they not world class as cyclists. Their lactate power, you know, their threshold power is not high enough. Their durability is not good enough. But they've got the big engine. And then now they're going to have to build that out. So VO2 max tends to peak pretty early. And people tend to overtrain train it. They, you know, that's where we get into the, all this interval training. They do a lot of work to keep trying to pound that VO2 max, but it's just not going to keep climbing. Then you go to these threshold-type developments, and those take longer because you're building mitochondria, you're building capillaries, and so forth. Uh, Efficiency, it seems, from the literature, some from case studies and so forth, perhaps takes even longer, meaning that we see slow gains in, in efficiency over time, You know, over several years of training, there's a case study involving uh, Paula Radcliffe, the marathoner, where it looks like that was one of her big changes that led to her world record was she just became more economical as a runner. Her VO2 max stabilized, her threshold stabilized, but she got more efficient. So that's that seems to be the time course. VO2 max peaks, threshold then peaks pretty soon. And then you get into these durability and efficiency Developments. And, you know, and in cycling, those are really important because the races are so long. So what you see is the athletes slowly extend their, you know, the duration that they can be competitive. You know, we've talked about this stuff before and those that takes longer.
0: Another question that this brings up in my mind and probably listeners out there is, okay, so what's the point of VO2 max training? Is that a misnomer?
1: If you remember, we had that long conversation with Sebastian Weber where we mentioned VO2 max intervals. And he's like, well, what do you mean?
0: Right. Yes. Be, and, pl- playing, playing devil's advocate. Yes.
1: Because you know, he made the good point of, well, you can't train VO2 max. Why are you calling them VO2 max intervals? Uh, I can tell you when I was up in the center in Canada, we actually called them MAP intervals for maximum aerobic
0: power. A more appropriate name.
1: Probably a little more appropriate. And you're going to get my hot take on it, but they are done at VO2 max power. So we took you into a lab, hooked you up to a metabolic cart, and saw what your power was at the point where your oxygen consumption levels off. That's the definition of your VO2 max. That is the wattage you're targeting with these type of intervals. So hence, they're called VO2 max intervals. But... Uh, the, the mistake people make is they hear that and go, oh, well, if I work at this intensity, I'm improving my VO2 max.
0: They should be called intervals at right. VO2 max power.
1: Which would be a, exactly a better way to look at it. And that's why I like the map because it's maximum aerobic power intervals. You're yes. doing them at that power. So what you have to remember here with these types of intervals is, yes, you are reaching the max of your oxygen consumption, But you do enough of any interval work, you are eventually going to reach the max of your oxygen consumption. So that's not necessarily the goal. At these intensities, you are seeing a combination of aerobic energy and anaerobic energy. So where, when you are doing thresholds, so that lactate threshold work, you're really much more focusing on that aerobic system. Now you're getting into that combination of of using a lot of both energy systems. So it's kind of a hybrid interval and they just generally really hurt. Mm -hmm. So this probably is getting into that you're training a lot of different energy systems here.
0: It's interesting because we have spoken with several really, really good athletes, high caliber um, Olympians, and they tend to love these things and maybe that's because it's just something that's hard to do and they like the confidence boost that they get from completing such a thing but we you know th- this these are hard demanding and people like them certain people like them yeah. others probably fear them very
1: much yeah i mean this would be this is not for this episode this would probably be a very interesting conversation to have about specifically that type of interval look at the different energy systems it hits raise that question of are you hitting too many energy systems? And when you're talking about a pro, are they you – know, when you – so think about it, When you're a pro at a very high level, you do run into that issue of your body is so well adapted. You have to really, really hit your body with a lot of stress to produce a further adaptation. So where I would say to a lower-level athlete, this is going to overload you with a top-level pro, I would say, yeah. That's
0: exactly what they need. Otherwise, they won't get an adaptation.
1: Yeah. Right. So maybe that's part of why they like it, because it's just a big overload. Mm -hmm. But I think that's a different conversation, actually, one I would love to do some research on and and at some point have that conversation. Yeah. So I think the important point that we're making here is I'm giving you this list of the different energy systems we're hitting, and that when we think about VO2max work, I don't really see that as hitting a specific energy system. I think it's a bit of a... a,
0: It bridges a few different ones. It's a little bit amorphous. Right. Well, let's just hear it from Sebastian, too. Here's a final thought on VO2 max intervals and why that is a bit of a misnomer.
4: Yeah, maybe we should do a podcast, one whole session about why you cause this the Maxent above.
1: <laughs> there, there is a whole bunch of terms that just have become the terms that you could really dive into, and well, we won't refer, we we don't have to refer to them
0: as such, but let's just define them as five minutes in length and
1: all out. Yeah, yeah. So I'd say four to five minutes, and it's yeah, you should right. be bleeding from the eyes by the end of that. <laughs>
4: Okay. So let's assume you do that. Um, and let's don't touch on it why you do that, or maybe you, why you don't do that. Talking about the recovery, right? Yes. The issue is here, and that's, that's the main issue with recovery periods, is that you are maxing out different systems, right? You're maxing out your creating phosphate stores, because those will be depleted at the end of this exercise. You are maxing out your pH levels in terms of de- decreasing those. You're most likely maxing out your, your your lactate concentration, which you can handle, so to speak, simplified. You're maxing out your, your, your VO2, obviously, like, you know, um, that's, that's part of it. Uh, and the issue with the rest period is that you have now different systems you need to recover. And they have different uh, time kinetics how long it takes them to recover, and they have different intensity at which they recover the best. And this becomes the complicated thing here, so to speak, if your intention is to bring back all systems to full recovery, which is needed if you want to at least try to repeat the same exercise. So let's say if you create a session here to be more precise on what kind of intervals you're talking about, if you create a session where you say I use f- I use I go, I go the first one full out, and then I use this power as a reference for the other for the follow for the following three four I don't know how many reps you want to do, and use this as my reference point and try to hit the same number. If this is what you're doing, then you need to recover and restore all those different systems. And again, they recover at different durations at, at different intensities.
1: Calling all coaches. We have started a new coaching support forum at Fast Talk Labs. Our new coaching forum is for certified coaches only and serves as a community where you can ask questions and get answers from other coaches on topics like testing, athlete management, new research, workout ideas, and more. Our new coaching forum host is Steve Neal, a veteran coach with over 30 years experience. Apply to join our coaching support forum at fasttalklabs.com coaches.
0: All right, let's move on to anaerobic capacity, VLA max. What are we talking about here, Trevor?
1: So anaerobic capacity and VLA max get confused, and they are two very different things. One is a capacity, one is a rate. So anaerobic capacity, literal definition of this is how much energy, total energy um, in joules you have above threshold. Now, that in itself is physiologically a little bit wrong because a lot of that energy does come from aerobic stores. It's not purely anaerobic stores. But it's getting at that, the idea is you're trying to get at just how much energy you have to, to draw on. Um, if you're, you know, There's a typical analogy that we use that I think might, might help you is think about, you talk about a matchbox. Mm-hmm. How many matches do you have before you just can't go hard anymore? So that's your anaerobic capacity.
0: Right. You um, might think of it as a jar or a something holding a quantity. Right. Whereas VLA max is a rate, which means how much, if you open up the spigot, how much is pouring out right. of it. How, how big fast. is the,
1: the, the top of the jar? Yeah. So that, that's a great analogy and a good way to think of it. So anaerobic capacity, how, thank you, is how big is the jar? And VLA max is how big is the opening of the jar? So you could have a big jar, but if you have a really tiny opening, you just can't pour out very much, <laughs> right, quickly. right, right. Um, so you can keep responding to things, you just can't respond well. Or you can be like a big sprinter who's got a, a pretty big jar, but has a really big opening and can just flip it over and dump it all out at once. Mm-hmm. But then you've got nothing left.
0: Yeah, just once almost, right. one
1: match. So good ways to think about it. Anaerobic capacity. So the the more the the term used in the literature is watt prime. This was something that actually Dr. Tabata was studying, was watt prime, and he was trying to figure out how to deplete it so he could he could um, study it. So actually, when he came up with the Tabata style interval, he wasn't trying to come up with a workout. He was trying to come up with a way to study this capacity, uh, and he found if he asked athletes to just go really hard for five, six minutes until they're depleted, that was just too hard and they couldn't do it. If he gave them really hard efforts with frequent reco- short recoveries, the recoveries weren't really enough to restore any sort of anaerobic store uh, energy stores. So you could very effectively deplete this watt prime. And so that is the origins of the Tabata-style interval. And they're a very effective interval for um, improving your, your anaerobic capacity. So this is your 20-10s was the original. So 20, t- 20 seconds all out, 10 seconds easy, 20 seconds all out. And you repeat that from anywhere from 5 to 8 minutes, and it's a good killer workout. A lot of variations on this. Pros actually seem to be tending more towards the 40-20, which sounds absolutely miserable to me, but then I used to do a, a 1 minute 30 seconds, mm-hmm. which really hurt. Mm-hmm. Um my favorite, even though it's not a true Tabata, is actually 1515s.
0: All right. Moving on. Let's talk about sprints.
1: So building sprint power is kind of its own beast. And this is probably the thing that is the most genetic. You either got it or you don't. And you don't got it. I don't got it. And I go out and do a whole lot of sprint work. And I think I have improved my sprint power about 100 watts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So That's something. You got it or you don't. I I know other people who have never done a sprint interval in their life and can put out 1600 watts. Right. So it's still a good thing to train. There is research that shows that uh, working on your sprint trains a lot of energy systems. Though I really want to warn people about putting too much faith in that because most of that research was done on people coming off the couch. And remember... You take somebody off the couch, you have them do anything, they're going to get fitter because they haven't been doing anything. If you are a well-trained cyclist, you're not going to see quite such a wonderful result from a single interval workout. But sprints are still valuable, and they're going to hit a lot of those upper end systems, improve that, that peak power. Uh, and the trick to these is they need to be all out, and you need long rests, so I generally don't prescribe anything over 20 seconds. I've seen re- recent research saying in many ways five to six seconds can be better. So don't think you have to sit there and sprint for a minute. That's no longer a sprint. But you watch a good track sprinter, they will do a sprint. Then mm. they will get off the bike.
0: Yeah, sit there
1: and basically. Lie down yeah, for minutes. So I'm not necessarily suggesting that, but I can tell you when I do sprint work, I do it on a climb. As soon as I finish a sprint, I turn around. I let the bike roll very slowly down the hill. And by that, I mean I have my brakes on to maximize the length of time before I have to start pedaling. And ideally, in between the, the sprints, I do 10, 15 seconds at most of very easy pedaling.
0: Mm-hmm. This may be splitting hairs too. Do you start the sprint from as slow a speed as possible from a standing start or do you roll into it? Does it really matter?
1: I don't think it really matters because you're trying to hit power. I roll into it slowly because I'm doing it on – and this is the other reason I use a hill. I'm doing it on a road with cars. And when you're all out sprinting, you um, you you know you don't have as good a control of the bike as you would have in other interval work if a car comes, if something happens. Because you're rocking that bike all over the place. You're hurting. You're seeing red. And there is a danger in the interval, in, in the workout. So I like to do it on a climb because I never get very fast. Um, and I, I want to be able to put out that big power without hitting that high of speed just to keep it safer. Mm-hmm.
0: And how many sprints would you do in one session?
1: I usually, so if I'm doing the 20 seconds, and I've heard people, so bear in mind, you know, I'm not a good sprinter, so these don't hurt me the way they hurt other people. And I had an athlete, the first athlete I coached, who was a good sprinter. I gave these to him, and he couldn't get through the workout because a good sprinter will tear themselves apart. Mm. So I have learned with a good sprinter, I will give them actually less, and I will give them shorter sprints. If you're a time trialist like me, you just don't do as much damage. So I'll do uh, sets of of eight repeats of 20 second sprints okay and and do two sets and it hurts
0: but for a sprinter they might do five seconds sprints or something like that
1: right keep it shorter and, and yeah you know, it'd be interesting what other people say here but yeah I have found you take a pure sprinter given the workout I do and they can't walk for the next five days because mm, they can tear themselves apart yeah I mean you experienced this you did the one run sprint.
0: Yeah. Yeah. D- different, different, uh, context really. But yeah, if you're not used to this, um, and you just go out there and especially if you're not warmed up, th- there's danger there that you could do damage that you d- that will take a while to repair.
1: Not as dangerous on the bike, but I still have seen athletes destroy themselves doing too hard a sprint workout on the bike.
0: All right. Let's turn our attention to sustainable power. What are some, uh, practical applications here what are some workouts we can talk about
1: this is sustainable power covers a lot and this is one that you can actually train with low intensity so going out and doing those long rides at aerobic threshold is a sustainability workout and actually a very valuable and important one that's low intensity uh, when i think about sustainable being sustainable doing high intensity work it's that ability to repeat intervals again and again and again and again. So it's back to that doing the hill repeats but hitting the same time. It's training your body to be able to keep doing it again, you know, repeatedly. And this goes back to uh, the, what you hear pros say all the time. is it's not how hard you can do the first climb. It's how hard you can do the last climb after four hours of racing. And so that can be, I'm not sure exactly what energy system you would call that. I, I just call it sustainability. But that ability when you are hurting to keep putting out the same power is really critical for racing.
0: Do you ever suggest to a rider that – and maybe this is getting to a bit more specific nuance than we want to get into. But to to, to target this type of uh, ability, do three hours of riding or four hours of riding. It doesn't have to be climbing. It could be flats and not going super hard, but then throw in a set of intervals at the end of that ride and, and and focus on consistency there.
1: I don't give that all the time because you're not obviously going to do the intervals with this, the same sort of quality you would do if you were fresh. But I do think as you're getting closer to the season and you're trying to train some of these other systems, particularly that ability to go hard when you're already tired is really important. So yeah, I will give some of that. I, I love to give the... Give an athlete that four to six hour ride and say, at the end of it, I want you to go and hit a climb and hit it hard for 20, 30 minutes. So you can also do that with, you know, it's easy for us here because we got 30 minute climbs. If I have somebody in an area where they don't have that, yeah, I'll give them some repeats that I want them to do towards the end of that ride. Knowing they're not going to do it with the same quality, but that's not what we're trying to train. What we're trying to train is that sustainability, that repeatability.
0: So we've established that high-intensity training is beneficial. It has a lot of benefits. You can't race well without it. However, at the start of the program, we talked about this idea of balance. It must be balanced. There is a limit to what you should do. Let's talk about that. Why are there limits here?
1: So – this is actually getting into one of those things that you know I love to talk about. There's a couple studies that really dive into this that that I absolutely love and I probably reference a bunch of times. So there's actually one that was written by Dr. Kofi and Dr. Holly that really goes into the the physiology of all this and then there's a, a great review by Dr. Larson that addresses this exact same question of, you know, how much high intensity versus how much volume. And I love the Dr. Larson study because he he starts by quoting a bunch of research that shows all these benefits of high intensity and no benefits to to low volume, and then says, but then why do pros do so much volume? And then provides his explanation. And all of this really leads to why we have landed on this polarized approach, which is that kind of a touch of high intensity, about 20%, you know, 15-20% high intensity, and the, the rest low volume. Um and it's because of this need for balance so let's go into this we'll do some of the the physiology behind this and really hope that this explains why yes you absolutely need high intensity work but why more is not better even if you're somebody who's only training six to eight hours a week more is not necessarily better
0: right and you know we have again touched upon this uh several places before Fairly recently, as well, in the two a days episode, I think we we touched upon this very subject. But let's dive into this maybe a little bit deeper than we have before. Right. Talk about the um, the fact that high intensity work happens fast. The adaptations that you're seeking happen fast, and they peak out quickly. What's that all about? How long does that take?
1: So let's. Before I can answer that, let's go back to one of my favorite terms.
0: Uh oh, I hear it. PGC-1 Alpha.
1: We're going there. Here it comes. So let's let's talk about this. So PGC-1 Alpha, how many episodes have we talked about this? This is this master regulator. When you look at most of the adaptations, the favorable adaptations that you get from endurance work, from endurance training, that as a cyclist, as a runner, as somebody involved in endurance sport, you want to see these adaptations. It is PGC1-alpha that is acting as a signaling molecule to make these things happen. So it is the master regulator. But there are four pathways that activate PGC1-alpha. I'm not going to go into two of them. I'm really just going to cover the, the two important ones here. One is this calcium chemodulin kinase pathway. The other one is the AMPK pathway. So, the two key pathways that we're going to talk about today that activate this PGC1 alpha are the calcium comodulin pathway. So, we'll call that the CAMK. And the other one is the adenosine monophosphate kinase pathway, or the AMPK pathway. So, what you tend to see is that that long, slow volume work, um, just getting the time on the bike, easy intensity tends to activate the CAMK pathway. High-intensity tends to activate PGC1-alpha more through the AMPK pathway. Mm-hmm. And this is important because what is been shown in the research is that while they both activate PGC1-alpha, the impact is different. So AMPK, the pathway that's activated by high-intensity work, tends to produce results very quickly. We're talking weeks. But the issue is it also tends to plateau very quickly. So you can produce rapid gains, but you're going to see those gains level off and you can keep hitting yourself with high intensity. All you're really doing is just maintaining form at that point.
0: I think we're going to get to this, but I want to have you clarify one thing. You say that this stuff, this high-intensity... Um, work through this pathway, the AMPK, AMPK pathway works in a matter of weeks. Is that one session per week for four weeks is all you need or, or am I jumping too far ahead and we'll get to that later?
1: I think we'll probably cover that more later, but it's a good question. And my answer is it depends on the type of high intensity work. And what I have seen as a trend is the higher the intensity, the more rapid the gains and the more rapid the plateau. So for example, when I give athletes pure lactate threshold work, um, I, usually, I want to have at least eight weeks, often 12 to 14 weeks to see gains. When I'm giving them that more anaerobic capacity type work, so let's say Tabata type intervals, I've seen a lot of research and I've seen this from experience, it takes about six to eight sessions total. Mm-hmm. When I'm giving sprint work, Boy, you see rapid gains quickly, but I, I might only give like dedicated sprint intervals two, three weeks at most. Right, okay. So the higher the intensity, the more rapid the gains, but the, the shorter you want to do that type of work. That's mm-hmm. at least been my experience, and I've certainly seen some research to back that up. So the key thing here though being that that AMPK, quick adaptations, also quick to plateau. Calcium comodulin, Pathway it takes a long time to see the gains. Years, months to years, months right? To years, but it doesn't seem to plateau nearly the same way. So that's where you will see gains year to year to year, and you'll keep getting stronger as an athlete. But you have to be patient and and want to see those gains, and that's the hard part because everybody goes and does the high intensity intervals, and two weeks later they're significantly stronger go, why wouldn't I do this all the time? Mm-hmm. And why would I do all that? And I'm, look, I remember my first year at the the center up in Victoria, who Shang tore me apart with the the low intensity stuff, doing these 36 hour training camps and tons and tons of volume that just had me completely fatigued. And he had warned me about this, but I, I had no idea what it was going to be like. I went into my first race that spring and was no better than I was the previous year. If not, because I was so fatigued, maybe a little bit worse. That was discouraging. Mm-hmm. And oh, I can see a lot of athletes going and doing this type of work and go, oh, I'm killing myself. Look at all the sacrifices I'm making. And then get to that first race and go, what?
0: Yeah, they what? might question why they're doing it at right. all. They have to have some patience. The, the long-term view is is what's necessary when you're you're trying to make the gains that only can come right. about through this this pathway.
1: And what I can tell you from my own experience was, yeah, that year was a rough year. And look, when I met with Hu Shang right when I, I came to the center, I told him my goals, and he went, great, two years from now. <laughs> and I went, right. no, next year. And he's like, no, two years. And I ignored him, and he was dead right. That first year, I killed myself. I did a ton of training, and it was a disappointing year because I wasn't ready for this. Following year, I was twice the athlete. Yeah. Just at a level that, for me, shocked me. So that's, that's what you, you, you need to be aware of. And that is the, always that temptation and why there's a lot of people go, I just want to do high intensity all the time because look at the, how quickly I'm improving. Just be aware of the fact that, yeah, you're improving quickly. You're going to plateau. Yeah. And if that's all you're ever doing, don't be surprised that year after year after year after year, you're just the same level.
0: In the context of an endurance sport, it's equivalent to instant gratification. Right. It <laughs> it's, is, it's not instant, but it's, it's close to it, closer to it than the other uh, gains you'll see from the, the uh, long, slow distance work.
1: Yeah. And look, if you know this stuff, you, you can cheat it a little bit and take advantage of some of that. I have a lot of years where I would do a ton of base training, come into the season, have really no race form have some races coming up where I need to do decently just go do three sprint workouts. And then, you know, I'm not on peak race form, but it's amazing. Just three sprint workouts. Mm -hmm. I go from pure base form to not bad racing form. Yeah.
0: So we've talked about these two distinct pathways. What's the explanation for why one sort of ramps up quickly and plateaus and the other takes such a long time to develop?
1: I've had a theory for why this is for a long time, and I've now seen some research to back this, and I've heard some people say this as well. And the short version of my theory is I believe that a lot of these adaptations, these rapid adaptations that you see from the high intensity, are more biochemical in nature, and Mm -hmm. your body can produce biochemical changes really rapidly. I think those other changes that take years, months to years, are more structural. So let me give you a quick example. One of the biggest adaptations that we see in endurance athletes is an improvement in stroke volume. So that's how much blood your heart can pump per beat. There's two ways to improve stroke volume. One, the structural, is to actually increase the size of your left ventricle. And there's a great old study that looked at Tour de France athletes and, sure enough, found They had much larger, a lot of them had much larger left ventricles than your average person. Um, That takes a long time to remodel your heart like that. Another way to improve stroke volume is just simply increase your blood volume. So think of it like a big garden hose. If you push more water, if you have more water to push through that hose, um, it's going to come out more rapidly. So you're going to get more blood coming out per beat just because of that increased pressure. That's biochemical. That can happen really rapidly. So the issue is with biochemical is there are stressor on the body. They appear quickly. They can also disappear quickly. Make structural changes. There was a I did read a study a couple of years ago where they looked at cyclists who had that increased size in their left ventricle. Even 10 years after quitting cycling, they still had that remodeling. Mm-hmm.
0: And we actually have spoken to, to uh, Dr. Seiler about this very subject, and I, he's got some thoughts that we'll share right now. He refers to these, these uh, adaptations you see from the high-intensity work as this fresh fruit comes along nicely, comes along quickly, but can spoil very quickly, I think is the point about this fresh fruit. It's ripe but it doesn't stay that way for long it starts to rot if right. you will and so let's let's hear from him about those gains
3: the bottom line is is that yeah when we increase the intensity for the intervals you can use a minute 90 seconds or so forth then you can and, and again and use that same idea go as hard as you can or or you know you end up around maybe 170% of functional threshold power. That was what Tabata used. If you go all out 30 seconds, you're maybe at 200% of FTP. These kinds of workouts will give you a little extra signal for that anaerobic work capacity stimuli. But they are not, I would say, they're not the best type of interval session for the aerobic stimuli. And if I'm six to 60 minute range or even you know that's very typical even if we're talking about a five hour event like the Flanders, you know the tour of Flanders, it comes often down to that last hour right between six and 60 minutes is often where things happen and you want to prepare your athlete to be able to produce a, a large average power in that duration range well, in that duration range, it's much more important to have a big VO2, a big aerobic capacity than it is to increase your anaerobic capacity by uh, a few percent. And the cost of doing those anaerobic workouts is high. My argument to people is, sure, if you're going to be competing for, you know, or you're going to be doing a, a, a competition where you need to be able to really dig deep on the anaerobic side, then let's top off the anaerobic capacity tank with a cycle, a three, four week cycle of high, you know, these anaerobic intervals could be Tabata. It could be, I prescribe you know, four to six times uh, a minute, 40, you know, a hundred seconds with 60 second rest or 70 second rest, but there's different ways to do it. But I want on those workouts, I want the athlete to basically slowly get cooked i want them to build up a high a low ph and a high blood lactate but i want to do it under control you know i don't want them to go all just like these other interval sessions i don't want them to start too hard i want them to collect some minutes so for these anaerobic sessions we might be collecting six to ten total minutes of anaerobic work Tabata, his, his, you know, the typical Tabata workout is three times four minutes, basically. 2010 times eight, that's four minutes of work. You do that three times, that's 12 total minutes, of which is eight minutes of work. So that's a typical anaerobic capacity session. And if you do that for three or four weeks, you'll get a bump in, in, in your AWC you'll get a, maybe a 10% increase in the power you're able to average for, for that kind of a workout. And that may translate in a six-minute race to a, few, uh, a couple of seconds improvement in your time. Definitely, if I'm an athlete and I'm in that you know, situation or if I'm a sprinter in a, a long race, then I'm going to be willing to invest some workouts to top off that tank. But we have to look – it's fresh fruit, those adaptations cost a lot to achieve because you've really got to stress the system, and they disappear fairly quickly. Yes, I would not, in a as a coach, I wouldn't use really high intensity anaerobic workouts regularly if I'm not in need of that peak anaerobic capacity, because the cost of maintaining that versus the you know, the, the effect that you get is pretty high or very high. Use those hundred hard sessions in the course of a year that I would want to do some hard thinking about how often do I need to do those, those really severe anaerobic sessions.
0: I think it's worth mentioning as well, when we're talking about this, um, high intensity work and why it, tends to plateau quickly, and and we talk about going over the edge of that, or that ripe fruit spoiling, what we're getting at is the amount of autonomic stress that it causes and what that can lead to. So Trevor, do you want to explain a little bit more what we mean by that?
1: Yes. And that's, so Dr. Larson has mentioned this, and actually Dr. Seiler did a, a whole paper on this concept of autonomic stress, that when you are, so- Actually, let me take a quick step back and say we just, we've just we been talking about you need to produce stress in order to get adaptations. There's good stress and there's bad stress. And autonomic stress is not the type that produces adaptations. Autonomic stress is the type of stress that you need to recover from or it's going to push you into that overreached and if you really push it into that overtrained state. So this is something you want to flirt with. You don't want to overdo. And when you are going slow and easy... You are producing no autonomic stress. It's quite literally like an on off switch. Once you go above a certain intensity, you start generating that autonomic stress. And when you've generated enough, then you need recovery. You, you need that true recovery to let that come back down, get that heart rate variability back up, get your body back into balance. So, that is the big danger. One of the big dangers of doing too much high intensity work is all you're doing is more and more and more autonomic stress. And you are going to push yourself into an overtrained state. So what that means is, and again, this comes out of, out of we're kind of harping on Dr. Siler here. I hope you're, you're listening. I hope you're enjoying this. Um, we'll bring in some other people. We got some great quotes from Dr. Uh, Sam Milan and from Grant Holicky that we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, but with the high-intensity training, what you see is, Two sessions per week produces a lot of gains, and it gives you enough time that you can recover and then hit your body hard again. Three seems to produce no additional gains, and uh, when you start doing more than three in a week, that's when you start pushing that very quickly into overreach and overtrained state. So there's really two reasons why we're saying hit work is fantastic but you need to limit it. One is because its gains are rapid, but they plateau. And the other one is because if you start doing too much, and this applies even people are just training six hours a week, if you start doing too much, you're gonna start overloading your body and start pushing it into an overtrained state. So this is one of my favorite quotes, even though Grant actually isn't talking specifically about doing too much HIT work. I've had this conversation with him, but it's kind of the same effect. He talks about ending up in this kind of mid-range where you're always sort of going hard, not ever really going easy or ever really going really hard. And when you do too much hit work, that's also what happens to you. So let's hear what he has to say.
5: Uh, So the big one, the one that jumps out at me always is making the easy too hard. And making the hard not hard enough. Um, training is about working the edges of the system. Um, base training is, is is that percentage of wattage or heart rate or however you happen to be describing it uh, or perceived effort. Base training is the foundation of what we're doing as an athlete. Um, you can do that base training harder, and frankly, one of the real interesting points is 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 shown in many in, in several studies base training, which is a little bit easier, and tempo training, which is that no man's land below threshold, actually are going to give you a similar physiological response. They both have a similar effect on threshold power. They both have a similar effect on VO2 max power, all of those things. Just one of them makes you more tired than the other one makes you. So the more time we spend in tempo, the more time we spend in that no man's land. That's going to sap the legs. That's going to sap the body. Now, when we turn around on Wednesday and it's time to really just rail those threshold efforts or rail those VO2MX efforts, we tend to not have as much left in the legs. So the hard training gets diminished down a little bit. The easy training gets lifted up a little bit. And we live in that world as, as, uh, as Neil, my, my, uh, partner at Apex coaching describes as we live in moderato, we live in that medium place and, and we're not going to get that return out of that medium place. Make your hard efforts, super hard and make your base training and your easy days at base or super easy.
0: Let's turn our attention now to more of the execution side of things. And we've talked about the different types of work you can do, these different categories that there are. And we segmented it quite a bit. However, there are other opinions out there. And at one point um, in the in the recent past, we talked to Jim Miller, coach at USA cycling. And he often refers to these three big buckets that he throws things into. So it's probably worth sharing that clip now.
6: I I tend to think that our body and how we divide these energy systems and, and specifically intervals, we're just, it's not that fine. We're not that, we're not that sophisticated. Um, when you tell somebody 280, the body really doesn't know the difference between 278, 275, 283, et cetera. So I, I tend to, to dump things into bigger buckets, the um, their intervals up accordingly. Uh, I do, you know, I do take a threshold interval and I like to do it a couple of ways. I do, I do long threshold intervals, 15 minutes, 10, 15, 20 minutes um, when we're building fitness. But then when I really start to, we start to get to race season, then I think that, uh, the broken intervals, the three on, one off, but you're doing 15 minutes of it, uh, tends to elicit a little bit different response. You end up with a higher power output. It's it's a harder interval. Um, and I think for your, your bang for your buck in racing, you get more out of that.
0: So so Trevor, to follow up on what Jim just said, uh, do you share his opinion? Uh, how precise do you need to be? What are the buckets that y- these things fall into? Are you segmenting it a bit more than what he does?
1: Well, I'm really glad we played that clip from Jim Miller first because you're about to get my another one of my hot takes. Mm. But now I can blame it on Jim. So if everybody's like, no, you're totally wrong, like, Jim said it first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I will give you my bias, which is – I I get questions all the time, these things like, well, if the recovery is 20 seconds versus 25 seconds, or if I do this at 97% of threshold versus 99% of threshold, and those little nuances, you know, doesn't that make a big difference in the training? Well, I do believe that proper execution is important. I don't think it makes that big a difference in terms of what energy systems you are hitting. And now this is where I'm really going to have to thread the needle Mm -hmm. because it does sound like I'm saying, we'll just go do whatever and don't care about the execution because it all kind of hits the same thing. I'm not going to quite go that far. I do think when you are doing intervals, you need to execute them very effectively. But what I am going to say is there's a lot of ways to skin the cat. And when people say, well, does, you know, this particular type of Tavada versus that particular type of Tabata, they have very different energy systems. My answer tends to be not really, maybe a little, but when I pick intervals for my athletes, I tend to just go, well, we want to hit the, you know, we really want to do some anaerobic capacity work. So I'm going to give you something that's short. And what I'm actually going to give you is a couple options, see which one gets you motivated to go out and go, go on the bike and go really hard. And then that's the one we're gonna do. Not and stick a, to it. Right. It's not gonna be, oh no, you're you're doing 30, 30 is not twenty tens, so now you're gonna ruin your whole season. We go, yes, I've seen research that shows they have slightly different impacts on you. But if I give you twenty tens and you go, I hate this and I don't want to do it, and you kind of give it a half hearted execution versus boy I love those 3030s that that gets me out there every day let's go with the 3030s 30s mm-hmm. so it, it this is that threading the needle a little bit but yes generally we we gave earlier those overall categories i think within those categories you're going to find they're all kind of hitting the same system like i said I, I, you can find all this research on this one does this that versus that one but at the end of the day there's the practical going out. What can you do? What do you enjoy doing? And and they're mostly hitting the same system. So don't stress that too much. Mm-hmm.
0: So what you're saying is that you'd rather a person choose a workout that they actually like, will commit to, will execute well, and will come out feeling confident that they did it, even if it isn't the quote unquote perfect workout for what they're trying to gain versus somebody versus choosing something that is quote unquote, the perfect one, which doesn't really exist. And they hate it and they don't, they kind of are sloppy about it and they come out just grumbling about it.
1: Right. So let me give you an example, because I actually just had this conversation with with one of our listeners, literally the example I just gave you, they were comparing 30 thirties to 2010s. And really passionately making this argument that they train very different systems and which do I need to do in order to accomplish you know and they were giving me very detailed here's here's what I'm trying to hit, here's what I'm trying to do. And here's my argument that I'll make to to almost any athlete. Go out, do 30 30s, you know, do do a, a month and a half of say 30 30s, <laughs> and then later in the season do a month and a half of 2010s then go do some races and try to show me you can tell the difference between what it, what impact it has on your racing. So if we put you in the lab, put you on a metabolic cart and measured the differences, we'd probably see some minor differences. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to racing, uh, you're going to be really hard-pressed to say, boy, those 3030s 30s just destroyed my races, and those 2010s <laughs> were just the miracle cure. Mm-hmm. More of what you're going to see, my point being, if you're going out and hating the 2010s and loving the 30-30s, you're probably gonna race better after the 30-30s because they're motivating, you're gonna do them better, you're gonna be enjoying your riding more, and overall it's gonna make you a better racer. Right,
0: yeah. The psychology of interval training, something that people don't often think about.
1: Right. So I fully agree with Jim Miller that you kinda dump all this stuff into buckets. And as long as you are picking from the right bucket, I personally don't get that worked up over which specific interval you're picking because I think that's where you're getting into the, yes, theoretically. And again, if we had you in a lab, we could see differences, but out in the road in the real world, yeah, it just doesn't play out the same way.
0: One thing that I think is worth mentioning here, and we did an entire episode on it, it was a really good one with Sebastian Weber, is there are significant differences based around the recovery between intervals that can change the adaptations you uh, get from any given interval workout.
1: Yes. So the classic example there is the, the original Tabatas was 20 seconds all out, 10 seconds recovery, and you just keep repeating that. Now, let's say you know I'm going to prescribe a, a completely different workout uh, with the only difference being the recovery length, and th- this is now going to be a pure sprint workout. So again, 20 seconds all out, but two- to three-minute recoveries without pedaling. going to have a very different impact on your body because with that couple minutes of recovery, you're going to completely restore your phosphocreatine you're going to you know, basically recharge that whole um, anaerobic system to be able to go all out again the point of the 2010s is there is not enough time to recharge your anaerobic energy stores um, so even though you're going all out anaerobic capacity as it's, it was designed is being depleted mm-hmm. so very different workouts and really the only difference in the prescription is the recovery length. So yeah, that can make a difference. Yeah.
0: I think another point to bring up here in terms of effective HIIT workouts is the fact that, in your opinion, consistency is key. And you don't want to have a different workout scheduled every week because then you don't really master, so to speak, that type of uh, workout having the same workout from week to week helps you perfect that execution, which means the quality increases and you get more benefit from each workout.
1: So pick a workout and stick with it. That is one of the biggest mistakes that I see athletes make where every time they're getting on the bike, they're doing something different. I also see coaches make that mistake where they feel they have to give their athletes these really sophisticated plans. And so, every time they're on the bike they're doing something different and my feeling is that leads to hitting every energy system never really hitting any energy system hard enough and can really plateau you so when i work with my athletes i always give them a primary workout and we do it for the length of time that's needed to really hit that system and get that super compensation now that said I still will have secondary workouts. So the primary workout they're going to be doing once or twice every single week. But I will give secondary workouts to either to hit a secondary energy system that's not quite as important where you might just be trying to maintain it. Or frankly, sometimes it can get kind of dull always doing the same thing. So sometimes you just need to throw in, let's go do a sprint workout or let's go do some over-unders, keep it interesting. But the key thing here is you have that primary workout that for this block is what you are going to focus on, hit that energy system that you need to hit. To step back for a
0: second, uh, there's these bigger buckets in your opinion, in your mind uh, of the types of work that you can do. But generally speaking, execution is more important than probably any aspect of it. So, So let's have you be more specific there. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah. I know that's really contradictory and uh, I know it's a struggle to get that. And I have certainly gotten emails asking me about that going, I don't get it. Because if you're saying 20, 10s, 30, 30s, you know, what, it doesn't matter. Aren't I basically saying, well, just go out and go hard. It really doesn't matter how. Um, no, I'm not quite saying that though. As you know, I'm a big believer training races are fun and they're great. You can get some good training out of them. But you're still, even if you're picking from bigger buckets, you're still trying to target energy systems. And that's in the execution. And if you don't execute right, you might not get the results that you really want to see. So let me give you an example. Uh, You know I love my my threshold hill repeats. So this is, you pick a 8 to 10 minute climb and you go and do it right around threshold and you do from 4 to 6 repeats. So my prescription to athletes is, they all have to be the same length. So if you do the first one at, at eight minutes, your longest one can't be more than 8.15.
0: And by that, you mean when you, you pick a start point, you pick an end point, right. and you should really try to do that segment at eight minutes each time. Right.
1: And the reason for that is we're, we're trying to train sustainability. I'm also really trying to hit that ability to produce power mostly aerobically. So really working on, on that, um, the, the threshold, so the anaerobic threshold. Um, and the reason that consistency is really important, So to, to explain why the execution is so important, I see athletes who don't execute very well take an approach where they go out, hammer the first one, do an amazing time. So they do like 7.30. Then they do the second one, they're eight minutes. Then they do the third one, they're 8.30. And by the last one, they're at 10 minutes. So
0: they're not doing the same thing.
1: They're not doing the same thing. So the reason they can hammer that first one is all your anaerobic energy stores are completely repleted. You, You have all that to tap into. Aerobic system actually takes time to ramp up. So when you do these hill repeats, that first interval, even though it's often your strongest, is the least effective because... You're not fully using your aerobic system. You're really using a lot of your anaerobic stores. So you go and hit it hard. Not very effective because you only sort of 90% hit the aerobic system. So then the next time you do it, well, you don't have as much anaerobic stores. You'll, you'll restore some as you do, descend the climb, but not fully. And so you're going to slow down because you're still doing the same. I'm not fully hitting that aerobic system. And I'm tapping into what I have less uh, left of the anaerobic system. And they just keep doing that with with all the intervals. So what you see is not a great job hitting the aerobic system, sort of hitting the, the anaerobic system. And then you have this workout that sort of hit every energy system but doesn't produce a great adaptation in any of them. The reason I have the all the lengths have to be the same, so they have to be consistent. Again, that first one's a throwaway. But each time you come back, you have less and less anaerobic stores to rely on. And you have to produce that power more and more aerobically. And what you'll find is by the time you get to that fourth and fifth interval, you feel like you're killing yourself to do the same time, where the first interval, if you did it right, you feel like you're holding back. Mm -hmm. But by those last few intervals, you are producing that power almost entirely aerobically. And those are the really valuable workouts because you are using all of your aerobic system to try to hit that same time again. So that's why execution is important. That allows you to really hone in on the particular energy system. So there's a lot of ways to hit a particular energy system, and you can pick from those many different types. But you have to execute right to ensure you are hitting the energy system you want to hit.
0: Before we close out the episode, uh, there's one more thing we want to address, and that is, you know, we've talked about the particulars of intervals, um, but we haven't necessarily spoken about how to fit that in or how to map that out in your weeks, and your months, and how to plan. So we want to turn it over to Dr. San Milan, who has some thoughts from uh, an episode we just recorded recently.
7: So if you have, for example, two months away, I would, I would divide that in two blocks of training. To what what is called the my, m- macro cycles, and I like I like usually when uh, you know to 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 do three three weeks training and one week recovery, and and this is where in these three weeks training, uh, I, I, you should still cultivate the zone two, but yeah, you should do uh, at least uh, two three times a week solid high intensity training. Which I should, I would tailor that uh, according to what type of race are you going to be doing in those two months, right? Is that a, a, a criterion or is it a, a short race or is a, a mountainous race uh, that is very long with many climbs, you know? So this is where you should, you should tailor, in my modest opinion, those high intensity exercise sessions to the race that you're going to do, that you're going to be preparing. But I would say that two to three days a week is important. Then you need to obviously to recover and then that that kind of regeneration week, I would do that. Um, But then of course, yeah, the the tapering has to happen, right, five days or so uh, before your goal, right, Uh, where you can do some activation sessions to activate the muscles. those energy systems but uh, at the same time you you don't want to train hard until the very last day i like to get to know them and and see you know like uh, for example their athletes they're very explosive and they do very well in short climbs but they don't do very well in uh, longer climbs And, and to me that's like if you do well in short climbs you should be able to do well in long climbs uh that's my humble opinion so that's what we try to uh work more on uh on the weak points right that we have identified and, and we try to do more high intensity during long periods of time or sometimes it's the opposite you know some 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 athlete is very good at 20 minute climbs but not very good at a five minute climb but it is all out and 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 they go at seven seven and a half watts per kilogram so you need to train that so that's what you adjust things ideally you have to improve in everything even if you're Tade bogacha uh, you cannot just sleep in the laurels, right? You can. You, you need to keep improving every year and keep stimulating uh, those uh, those metabolic uh, pathways and uh, the bioenergetics. And uh, regardless of the age, this is what we do. And and you know we see that so far in, in these last three years, I've been with with Tade every year. He keeps improving a little bit and a little bit, and hopefully he keeps going like that as well. But uh, yeah, it's about identifying the weak points and how we can uh, address them uh, in in, in the most scientific way that we can. And and this is where uh, you need the very solid base before entering the the, the cycling season. Once you have that solid base in the cycling season, yes, of course, you need to focus on two things. One thing is to uh, improve that uh, turbo, right, that uh, that high intensity capacity, the glycolytic capacity. Uh, if you have a busy racing schedule, that is going to come pretty much on its own because the best way to get competition pace is competition itself. If you don't have a much, a very busy schedule of races and you only race 15 races a year, you're going to have to train it, right? Uh, so that, that, that's the one thing once we get into competition. The other thing, the second bucket, once you get into the competition is the monitoring phase. So we need to monitor athletes very well, how they're simulating training and competition, because uh, this is where overtraining starts happening. Uh, there's not much overtraining during the off season, uh, but this is where in the, during the season, this is where overtraining is very, very prevalent. Uh, I I would not be able to tell you obviously that percentage of, of people, right? But I would say that uh, a good 60 to 80% of cyclists get overtrained during the season. So it's very important to monitor these to make sure that we uh, rearrange uh, both uh, um, training schedule, maybe competition as well, and nutrition correctly according to the monitoring that we're doing.
0: That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. And become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Hannah Finchamp, Dr. Steven Seiler, Kristen Armstrong, Grant Holicky, Sebastian Weber, Jim Miller, Dr. Inigo San Milan, and Coach Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.